Jim, they refused to pardon you. They refused. The state's promise didn't mean anything. It was all lies. They just wanted to get me back so they can have their revenge. To keep me here nine more years. Why, their crimes are worse than mine. Worse than anybody here. They're the ones that should be in chains, not we. You don't have to stay here nine years, Jim. The commission voted that if you were a model prisoner for one year, they would concede that you had paid your obligations in full. It's only nine months, Jim. Nine months of this torture. I won't do it. I won't do it, I tell you. Jim. I'll get out of here. Jim. Even if they kill me for it. Jim, it's still better to be honorably free. And in those nine months, we'll be working for you night and day. But you've been working night and day. It doesn't do any good. But Jim, we'll have the whole country behind you then, and the state will be forced to release you. All right. I'll wait nine more months. I'll be a model prisoner if it kills me. You are listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. The following podcast contains adult language, adult situations, and spoilers for the movies discussed occur often. You've been warned. Now, take it away, Dr. Rausch. They must be destroyed on sight. Yeah, no, there you go. There you go. <laughs> uh, but welcome. It is They Must Be Destroyed on Site, episode 112, and I'm your host, Lee. You can go all over the world and you won't find worse, Russell. And I'm joined by my co-host, Daniel. I'm free, white, and 21 Harper. How you doing, sir? <laughs> I have forgotten that line was in this movie, and surely it's higher than 112. Isn't it 172 or something? No, it just feels like it. <laughs> okay. Did I say 112? You did. Oh, 212. 212, okay. Yeah. <laughs> We've been doing this longer than that, Lee. <laughs> I'm on the ball, man. Yeah, yeah. As I tell you. <laughs> Time means nothing when you've been, you know, doing a real long stretch, as it were, you know. Yeah, but, no, uh, that's, yeah. that's how it goes, yeah. Doing this podcast is very much like being uh, tortured doing 16-hour days of hard labor uh, with one day off a week. Yeah, that's very much what it feels like doing this podcast with you. Uh, yeah, but we are still in 1932. Still got a few more episodes there. I think we'll be moving to 33 next week. I think that's okay. the plan. Yeah. We're the penultimate uh, episode in 1932 for now. And uh, we're going to be looking at I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang. 
and uh, that should be fun. Well, <laughs> the subject matter ain't all that fun, it's a, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's a good movie, so at least we'll have fun talking about it. So yeah, yeah, uh, we have no feedback this week. Nobody um, nobody cared to say anything to us, which is fine. It's yeah, fine. Uh, no hatred even on uh, YouTube, which is disappointing. <laughs> but you know, where's the movie? I'll just mm-hmm. we'll just leave it at that. Yeah, where's the movie? Yeah, I'm fine with that. Uh, we'll just move on. Um, to uh, we've watched lately, uh, you have nothing. I will mention a couple things here real quick. So, the first one uh, I just watched, and uh, it's got quite the title. Uh, it's from 2020. It's called Uncle Peckerhead, and it's uh, definitely not what it sounds like. <laughs> it's a. Um, Is this the sequel to the 1998 uh, John Waters film Pecker? <clears throat> no. <sighs> That has Christina yeah. Ricci in it, doesn't it? I think so. It does uh, Edward Furlong. Yeah, so I don't care about Edward Furlong. Christina Ricci, I have time for, but uh, enough. Enough. but yeah, this is a uh, sort of punk rock horror comedy. It's kind of like if Green Room had a lot of laughs in it, uh, you know, instead of <laughs> instead of them being barricaded by Nazis. Um, <laughs> yeah, so basically, this uh, down on their luck band who want to hit it the the big time, they need a tour van. And so they uh, hire a van from this guy who calls himself Uncle Peckerhead. And he's just this uh, easygoing sort of southern redneck dude who turns out to be like the best friend you could hope for, you know, as a roadie. Just really encouraging and really excited for the band and stuff. The only catch is at midnight for 13 minutes every night, he turns into a flesh-eating demon of some sort. And uh, his secret gets exposed the first night, of course, that they're together. Kills a sleazy promoter that was trying to uh, uh, take them for uh, their money. And they decide, well, you know what? He's a pretty good roadie and he's got a van, so we might as well keep him along. So they just try to, you know, they try to keep him under wraps and stuff like that. But uh, of course he ends up killing more real dirtbag people who treat the band poorly. And uh, it takes a bit of a twist at the end, but really well well done. Uh, I, I enjoyed yeah. it. Uh, just a really enjoyable little horror comedy. Uh, I kind of wanted to see like the version of Green Room now where it's uh, <laughs> this band gets booked at that Nazi club and Uncle Peckerhead at the stroke of midnight just wipes out the whole lot of them. You know? Just wipes them all out. Yeah, that sounds, yeah. That sounds great. Perfect. Yeah, I know. Yeah, no, I, I do, you know, you do have to admire the, you know, 13 minutes right at midnight. Really, maybe he just never thought it was going to come up because, you know, those uh, punk bands are well known for their, you know, like uh, going to bed early and uh, you know, <laughs> living clean life kind of um, kind of attitude towards things. So, you know. Yeah, uh, but no, it's fun. Um, don't let the, you know, don't let the name dissuade you. It is a fun little horror comedy and uh, one of the best I've seen this year. So uh, it's awesome. good. Yeah, sounds fun. Another one I watched uh, from 2018 called Alpha, and this is kind of a family picture. It's it's the, you know, humans from 20,000 years ago, uh, like this young kid gets separated from his tribe and bonds with a wolf. It's kind of like telling the uh, the, the fantasy narrative of how uh, how uh, man and, and uh, de- domesticated the wolf or whatever kind of thing, sure, you know. Like how, how dogs became domesticated, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, fine just you know just kind of a light family film in a way um definitely a throwback though like you don't really see family films like this so much anymore i don't think where they have a lot of you know like hardship and adventure and stuff that feels a bit more gritty man we we as a race we looked super hot twenty thousand years ago i gotta tell you (laughs) we've we had perfect hair and yeah you know all the beard oil and all that stuff yeah yeah, everybody Everybody grew up i I presume you know Uh, 
Sounds very uh, sounds very historically accurate there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you know, if you can get over that, it's actually uh, pretty enjoyable. You know, light fare, but uh, a good one you can like watch for your your kids and stuff like that. Yeah, so sure. uh, yeah, and uh, the last one I'll mention uh, this is a haunted house film from uh, 2020. It's a Kevin Bacon uh, haunted house film called uh, You Should Have Left. Kevin Bacon plays this like screenwriter who's you know noticeably older than his uh, current wife uh, Amanda Seafried or whatever her name is. Uh, yep. Yeah, and they have this cute little daughter together, and uh, they decide to uh, rent this little uh, this little sort of uh, vacation home in Wales, and uh, just just to get away from the world for a little while. And of course, it's a weird house. There's weird shit happening at the house. Uh, it's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. Uh, there's like mysterious hallways leading places, and all that stuff's really good. Very much like it, it's it's not The Shining. But, you know, it, it's done well enough where it's like, yeah, it's as kind of creepy as The Shining, you know, as far as, like, the interiors and all that go. Kind of turns into a standard haunting movie at the end with a twist you can kind of see coming a mile away. But for the most part, pretty good. Good performances. The host kind of plays people against each other. Like, there's tension between him and his young wife, who's probably cheating on him. And there's also kind of a weird connection to... Uh, uh, what was that fucking Harrison Ford ghost movie from the like the nineties? What lies beneath or something what like lies that? Beneath, yeah, I think this yeah. was like two thousand one or something. Yeah, yeah, it almost feels a little bit like a remake of that, and in a certain way, mm-hmm. uh, uh, maybe that's too spoil spoiler uh, riffic yeah, there. Possibly, but, uh, possibly, I haven't seen the film, but uh, yeah, no, I just mm. saw What Lies Beneath theatrically. Believe it or not. <laughs> oh really? Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, all right. I mean, it's pretty decent. Yeah. Yeah, it was all right. Uh, That's the thing it does. It was Michelle Pfeiffer was in that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's uh, that's all we got. So we can uh, move on. Uh, we'll take a quick little break. We'll play some music, podcast promo. And we'll come back and talk about "I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang." Broadcasting from the cursed earth, the psychosemanticast. Let us face without panic the reality of our time, the fact that atom bombs may someday be dropped on our cities, and let us prepare for survival by understanding the weapon that threatens us. To have a, uh, an ignorant, uh, thin-skinned megalomaniac uh, who sends off uh, you know, Twitters at 3 a.m. if somebody angered him. The neo-Nazis turning up in Washington, D.C. to have a rally saying, Heil Trump. We talk about politics. I knew I couldn't trust you corporate greaseballs. We talk about movies. You can't come down here and arrest people just because of what they look like. Are you crazy? But that's police harassment. We talk about political movies. We're in trouble. The whole world's in trouble. They're all around us and we never knew them. You can only see them with these special glasses. The Psycho Semanticast. Ah! I hear something saying, That's the sound of the men working on the chain gang. That's the sound of the men working on the chain. Gang, all day long they're saying, Ooh. Ah. Ooh. Ah. 
the sound of the men working on the chain gang. That's the sound of the men working on the chain gang. All day long they work so hard till the sun is going down. Working on the highways and byways and wearing, wearing a frown. You hear them moaning their lives away, then you hear somebody say, That's the sound of the men working on the chain gang. That's the sound of the men working on the chain gang. Can't you hear them saying, mm, I'm going home one of these days. I'm going home, see my woman. Whom I love so dear, but meanwhile, I've got to work right here. That's the sound of the men working on the chain gang. That's the sound of the men working on the chain gang. All day long they're saying, my, 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 my work is so hard, give me water. I'm thirsty, my, my work is so hard, oh, my, 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 my work is so hard, oh. Okay, we're back for I'm a Fugitive of a Chain Gang from 1932, and we'll just play a truncated trailer here. The trailer was like two two minutes and 30 seconds. It's like, nah, I got to cut that down a little bit. But uh, here we go. All right. Here he is, the man who preferred death to the tortures of the Chain Gang. His was the most sensational escape in Chain Gang history. Crawling through the thick brush, bloodhounds at his heels, hiding in swamps, he outwitted his pursuers at every turn. This man has lived a thousand lives in one. A hunted thing on earth. I'll learn you to sit up and hold on to... This! Come on, get up! I was just wiping the sweat off my face. But you got it knocked off. Fellas, it's about time you called quits. You've been pulling a bluff on me, and I've been fool enough and coward enough to fall for it. Oh, you filthy, good for nothing convict! A bluff, eh? You'll see. You'll see. What's that doing? Give me the police station. Why haven't you come before? I couldn't. I was afraid to. You could have written. It's been almost a year since you escaped. But I haven't escaped. They're still after me. They'll always be after me. No friends, no rest, no peace. Oh, Jim. Keep moving. That's all that's left for me. Directed by Mervyn Leroy, and uh, you might have heard of some of the stuff this guy's uh, been involved with. Uh, producer and director, big big name in Warner Brothers uh, around this time. 
directed nine films that have been nominated for an Academy Award for Best Picture, and that's just sort of scratching the surface of stuff that he's done that's been nominated. You might know him from uh, Little Caesar from 1930. He has an uncredited credit on The Wizard of Oz from 39. Uh, wow, yeah. that. Um, the Bad Seed from 1956. <laughs> and his last film, unfortunately... Uh, he helped ghost direct with John Wayne, uh, the Green Berets from 1968. But, you know, y- y- they can't all be uh, uh, great little uh, cinematic gems. But <laughs> Well, you know, especially when you're, a, you know, kind of director for hire with Warner Brothers. For, yeah, I know. And just uh, looking at the list myself, I didn't uh, check him out uh, before I uh, came on here. But, uh, yeah, no, lots of, lots of great stuff here. We should definitely uh, kind of mine this for some, um, for some material, mm-hmm. I think, yeah. Yeah. So this is written by uh, Howard J. Green, Brown Holmes, and Sheridan Gibney, and it's based on the novel by Robert E. Burns, I Am a Fugitive from a Georgia Chain Gang. Uh, we should get into that before we get to the cast, honestly, uh, just yeah. just briefly here, the history here. This film is actually based on Robert E. Burns' true story. Uh, it's changed a little bit. You know, uh, it, it makes the main character look a little bit more heroic than <laughs> Robert E. Burns actually was. He, uh, But it basically sticks to the facts. Uh, Burns uh, himself stole like $5.29 in order to eat. He managed to escape from the uh, Georgia legal system. He escaped which, the chain gang. Which in 19, even in 1921, I did the, I did the calculation on this. It's only like $80. Like this is not, mm. you, know, this is not like, <laughs> you know, Oh, you stole five bucks. That was probably worth like, that was five. That was like five men's years wages. in 19. no, 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 no. That was, it, it's literally like, you know, it's, it's like the contents of a cash register. It's nothing, you know, mm. But yeah, he did escape. Uh, he tried to re- you know restart his life basically, and uh, with the help of uh, three different governors in uh, New Jersey, apparently, sort of sort of kept him out of uh, George's uh, grasp. And so he basically wrote his book, sold his story to Hollywood while he was still on the lam. Actually went to Hollywood for a little while as it was being filmed, but then fled back to uh, New Jersey because he was. Uh, little skittish, a little worried that he might get picked up, you know. And uh, Warner Brothers took a big chance on this, basically. Uh, they weren't doing so well. Uh, they did. Th- this is like their first in a string of, I guess, social commentary films because this was such a big hit. So it's like, oh, we could probably do these, you know. And although uh, Georgia was never named in the actual film, like it's never said where the actual chain gang was and stuff, uh, they were still sued. By by the Georgia uh, corrections or whatever, uh, including the uh, chain gang warden, uh, J. Harold Hardy. Uh, they they all sued. Uh, didn't go anywhere, but um, it did give him a lot of trouble. And apparently, um, the film was banned in Georgia. And the studio's head and the film's director were told that should they ever find themselves in Georgia, they'd be treated to a dose of the social evil they so roundly denounce in this film. But and yeah, <laughs> that, and, is, that is certainly that is certainly a uh, a thing that really makes me think kindly upon those people. Oh. You criticize us for being harsh and torturing uh, yeah. prisoners. Uh, we'll show you. We'll show you torture, boy. Yeah. 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 But, uh, yeah, Robert E. Burns did get his sentence uh, commuted eventually and, yeah, uh, yeah uh, made out made out well, pretty, pretty well for himself. But, uh, yeah. So we'll go to the cast here. Uh, this is starring uh, Paul Mooney uh, as uh, James Allen. He's probably best known other than this film for Scarface from 1932. At least... That's what jumped out at me. I, I looked at his career, and it's a fucking long one. Like every, 
Almost so, everybody on this actually had a pretty long career or long yeah, no, life. No, no, no. I mean, this is kind of a big budget picture. It has, uh, you know, big name people who uh, lasted a while. Uh, yeah, no. Mm. Um, Mooney, best known for for uh, Scarface and this, both in the same year, ironically. Yep. <laughs> yeah, apparently uh, Marlon Brando himself, you know, at one point worked with Mooney and called him like the greatest actor he had ever seen. Which, um, you know, I, I, you know, you can definitely kind of look at Paul Mooney and think this is sort of the early thing that like the method acting is going to, is going to become, yeah. you know, like he, he's kind of doing an early version of it. Um, and it is a f- phenomenal performance. Uh, obviously I think one of the reasons to recommend the film, but what's interesting is that he, m- most of his career was on stage. He kind of mm-hmm. comes, um, he spends a lot of time on stage and then uh, kind of comes to Hollywood almost reluctantly, <laughs> um, yeah. you know, is, is kind of like hangs around being a, a contract player for, you know, a decade and some change and then kind of goes back to the stage and then he has some, you know, personal, uh, apparently he lost his eye and, uh, you know, had some, had some personal issues and uh, eventually uh, dies, but not until the sixties. So, you know, by the standards of, by the standards of the people that we're talking about in the films in this era, like, you know, he was a wizened old man, you know? Yeah. He lived into his seventies. So he did pretty well. Um, I guess he had like a heart condition for his entire life too, you know, uh, rheumatoid heart or whatever. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I guess one of the big things with him is why he's still revered as such a big star is that he's actually one of these guys who did some silent films and actually transitioned to the talkies because he had the sort of voice for it, and, right, as right. opposed to a lot of other people. And I guess that's partly due to his, you know, his stage background too. Uh, but uh, yeah, so uh, kind of a big, big fucking deal here he is. Uh, uh, Glenda Farrell is Marie Woods. She was in Little Caesar, and she was also in uh, this. Stood, this stood out. This is something we should probably look into at some point. The Torchy Blaine series, which is she's a like a girl reporter. Like she had her own series of like three or four films as like this girl reporter getting in romances, getting in danger. You know that kind of yeah. Stuff. Definitely something we should we should take a look at. Now I noticed that there are three almost interchangeable blondes in this film. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I have very, trouble. They look very, very similar and they all had very long distinguished careers. And so mm-hmm. we should definitely, you know, start throwing some movies onto our list from those. Anyway. Yeah. yeah we got to get um, through this cast list eventually. So we can talk. Yeah. The, movie. the rest of us, the rest of us is very speedy. Uh, Helen Vincent as Helen. Uh, Noel Francis is Linda. Uh, Noel Francis, uh, excuse me. Preston Foster is Pete. Ellen Jenkins is Barney Sykes. Benton Churchill is the judge. Edward Ellis as uh, Bomber Wells, who should be mentioned because he is the titular Thin Man in the Thin Man from 1934. Uh, Ooh, yeah, interesting. Uh, so. You know the uh, the catalyst basically for that entire th- series, yeah. uh, which is on our list to do when in like six months we get to nineteen thirty four. Yeah, <laughs> uh, David Landau is the warden. Hale Hamilton is Reverend Robert Allen. Sally Blaine is Alice. Lewis Carter is James Allen's mother. Willard Robinson is prison board chairman. Robert McWade is F. E. Ramsey. Robert Warwick is Fuller, and William Lemaire as a Texan. He's actually credited in the movie too as a Texan because they have everyone's picture at the beginning of it, like uh, mm-hmm. crediting them, and it's like well, William Romare, a Texan. He's just a fucking Texan. That's what the sweetie is. That, that's, that's a character. All, that's, how you gotta, that's how you had to be. Yeah. So synopsis here: Having returned from fighting in World War One, James Allen doesn't want to settle for the humdrum life and decides to set off to find his fortune. He travels the length and breadth of America, working as a skilled tradesman. 
in the construction industry. When times get tough, however, he finds himself living in a shelter where an acquaintance suggests they go out for a hamburger. What the friend really has in mind is to rob the diner, and Alan soon finds himself working on a chain gang with a long jail sentence. Alan manages to escape, however, and heads to Chicago, where over several years he slowly but surely works his way up the ladder to become one of the most respected construction engineers in the city. His past catches up with him, and despite protestations from the civic leaders and many uh, friends in Chicago, he finds himself again in the chain gang. Escaping for a second time, he accepts that to survive, he must lead a life of crime. Written by Gary K. M. C. D. And yeah, that that is uh, sort of the major touch touch points on this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. So uh, I assume this is the first time watch for both of us. Yeah, first time yeah, watch. Yeah. Just to see, just this evening, actually. So yeah. So uh, what are your sort of general thoughts? Uh, I really, really like this. I mean, this. You know, we've kind of been talking about how like this year is just like. We watched so many amazing films because we're literally going back and just watching amazing films from the past mm-hmm. this year. Um, but this very well, I mean, this would easily make my top 10 list in any other year. It may not make my top 10 this year just because we've done so much other great stuff. But it's it's up there. It's up there. And I think Mooney's performance and, and um, I mean, Mooney's performance is definitely one of the best performances I'll see this year. Like, Yeah. Um, particularly for the for the time period. I mean, you know, I think it is... <clears throat> One of the things we could talk about is like certain moments are a little bit easier to, um, you know, they kind of come across a slightly comical and sort of the, the kind of over dramatic way that like just acting just kind of was around this time. But at the right. same time, um, there's a lot of really great stuff here. I- I'm struck by the way that the film, I mean, A, this is, it does hew pretty closely to sort of the real story as I understand mm-hmm. it. Um, that Robert Burns becomes like, he's, he becomes like an editor. And a writer more so than like he doesn't go into like the building trades, but he yeah. definitely has this sort of like I mean, he becomes so sort of a scion of high society. He becomes this kind of like really well respected guy, and that allows him to sort of like write this thing and this and to be able to um, kind of curry favor in the in these kind of places. Right. Um, he also like you know totally like the whole thing of you know I rented a room from this girl and then ended up marrying her mm-hmm. and then like left her for like a twenty one year old. Totally in the film, and mm-hmm. totally part of what happened. And apparently, the uh, the actual woman that he um, married uh, denied ever like sending off the tipping off the cops. And there is a, a thing of like, well, she's kind of the bad the bad person in this in this film. I mean, we really get a sense of you know, like she she's definitely sort of treated that way by the movie, probably unfairly. Probably, <laughs> you know, I don't know. Yeah. It's kind of hard to it's kind of hard to know exactly what the history is there. I, I, I get a I get a real feeling that our protagonist here in real life was not that great of a dude. I'm <laughs> sure, sure. I, yeah, I mean, but I I also think that even in the film, I don't think we're really kind of given like it kind of doesn't matter, right? Mm-hmm. Like the point isn't and and this is something that, you know, Hollywood films just kind of do is uh you know you want to portray like oh he's the innocent person who is subjected to these things and all these other guys they may be actual bastards and they deserve this treatment but actually our one guy our hero like he's you know kind and virtuous and like doesn't kick the puppy etc and it's like no actually no one no one deserves this like this is this is is inhumane for anyone you know and and it's also like you know once the chain gangs go away because that's sort of the effect of the film is that southern states started banning the use of chain gangs Mm -hmm. which 
unfortunately came back in Alabama in the nineties for <laughs> for it? a brief yeah. period. Yeah. Um, although not under, not under quite such, uh, aggressive. It was um, more conditions. like uh, road cleanups and stuff. Yeah. Road it? cleanups yeah. and that kind of stuff. Right. Also prison in general is just that bad these days, you know, like they're like an Angola state prison in Louisiana, which is, I believe he's supposed to be serving time in uh, Louisiana. I thought he was in New Orleans, but I could be mistaken on that. Angola state prison is essentially an unreformed slave plantation. It really just kind of, it was a slave plantation that became a prison. And then after the civil war, it just sort of kept doing the same thing. Like it's like, it literally is, it's as close as you can get to what life is actually like on a slave plantation in the 21st century. And oh my like, god, the the fucking the the black prisoner, the the big muscle bound oh, black yeah. prisoner, where the guy jokes, he's such a good worker, they plan on keeping him on anyway. You know, they're never going to let him out. Like, oh my god, <laughs> oh no, no, it's so on the nose, but mm. it's so like true, right? This isn't that's that's they'll just they'll just jam him up on some other charge they'll call him bad behavior or whatever just to kind of keep him working you know and that's the that's the point completely conditions in prisons have not improved greatly from you know they they're still served rotten food and and moldy Mm. food and they're still kind of like worked under slave-like conditions i mean this is not you know they just moved it indoors yeah and uh it's absolutely atrocious it's terrible that said it's nice that uh, it's nice that people at least recognize the chain gangs that the most appalling conditions were, were bad. And the film clearly has a, a lot to say about that. And I think it's very effective, not just at sort of portraying that reality, but I think it's an effective kind of piece of drama. I think it actually mm-hmm. works like as a movie, even without the sort of the impetus of the kind of the, the social uh, you know, policy, the kind of um, sociological engineering kind of elements to it. Mm-hmm. I think it works as a film. I think it works dramatically. I kind of really buy this guy. I think, I think the ending kind of, I don't know, I have some, some issues with the ending, but I think we can get there as we get there. Um, but yeah, overall, I think the film was very, very good. And um, I'm planning on, I'm actually probably going to buy the DVD <laughs> and, and actually own this one. I, I really enjoyed it. So, uh, Yeah, so this is definitely proto-noir. This is yeah, yeah, so, yeah. so, so close. When, when you think of noir, you, you kind of got to go as far as probably the 40s before you really get a film that kind of really fits that uh, genre, but everything's kind of in place here. Like, honestly, the ending definitely is so fucking noir that it, you know... (laughs) Right, right. Almost, almost to its detriment. Again, we'll get to the yeah. ending, I think, here in a minute. But um, I mean, uh, we can talk about it now if you want. I'm just, you know, no, no, no. Absolutely love this. This probably will go on my best of the year list. I, I, I kind of feel like uh, it was that good. I mean, this is not the first prison film from this era that had a big influence on other films, but it's probably the most influential I can think of. Like, okay, I'm blanking on those, but I, I do know ones that were influenced by this one. I can definitely think of them. Um, there's a swamp escape in blackmail from 1939 with sure. uh, Edward G. Robinson, which is definitely pulled from this. Wait, he kind of borrows from this to a large degree. I mean, Look, there is yeah. a sense in which, you know, large numbers of like, think about how many movies you've seen that have protagonists or, you know, sort of figures that have served like prison terms who sort of mm-hmm. like come out and then have, and it's all, it all kind of comes from this, this kind of DNA, not to that, not that this is like the first of sort of the, the, prison in in a movie but mm-hmm. certainly a hugely influential one both because of its like cultural impact its sociological impact 
and it's um, box office. I mean, it just made a lot of money. And so it's funny that like there are so many films that sort of have people who have kind of served their prison terms who kind of get out, who kind of are treated as, you know, regular protagonists who have needs who have you know mm-hmm. which sort of ends when the period of mass incarceration in the united states yeah. in the 80s it is interesting that like you just kind of like oh and now all these people are terrible because they were doing crack cocaine you, see? Mm-hmm. Um, you know doing the cocaine yeah yeah uh, no, no, no the crack cocaine oh the crack cocaine it's these are these are those kinds of people if you know what i'm trying to suggest these oh, are not I, I, our I, people these are they're, different. They're very, uh, they're street people, is what you're saying. Yeah, they're street people. Urban. They're urban. They have yeah. urban attitudes. If you exactly. Understand. Yeah. But also, <laughs> like, uh, the, the truck escape, that's, yeah. there, there's a segment in Cool Hand Luke that basically duplicates that. Yeah. Uh, and then there's, um, oh, uh, even bits the, of like Raiders of the Lost Ark, that like, like chase <laughs> scene. Yeah. Sort of seemed to borrow from that. You know, like, yeah, no, I could see that. But I mean, the the way prison life is depicted in this, and and it's, it's funny too because it's it's only like the first, the first segment of the film for the most part shows you the prison life stuff, and then once you get to about the forty minute mark, it moves to his you know his escape, and his in his life uh, on the lamb, and then you get back to the prison briefly or whatever. But for the for the few minutes you're you know there in the prison, goddamn the conditions like. The, those chains they're wearing, the, the leg irons would they would effectively cripple you after wearing them for a few weeks, right? Like, oh, yeah, yeah. so so even if you got them off, you couldn't effectively run away for the most part. Uh, it was that bad. You see the guy who gets out, uh, and you know everyone's waving at him, "Hey, good luck!" You know what what the fuck? And the and the guy's like has trouble walking to the fucking truck that's going to take him away because he he can't walk properly anymore, right? right? But when they load them up that first night, they load them up on the truck to send them out to the yard, to uh, the quarry, to, you know, smash rock. The system they have. So they, they have them all sit on the flatbed of the truck. They put the chain through all their loops and lock it to the truck. But there's enough, there's like enough loose chain there where if someone slipped off of the truck, they would pull like three or four other people yep. off the truck with them. And they'd probably go into the fucking wheels of the truck. Jesus Christ, that's yeah, it's fucking horrific. Right. There's also like a strict system of segregation that seems to be in place uh-huh. here, where you know, like the uh, the black convicts are in like one thing. And I I was really wondering what this film would do with race. And it actually, I mean, it's got its problems, but you know, by the standards <laughs> of the stuff we've been seeing, you know, it's uh, you know, it does at least humanize the one black man who gets a line or two, you know. <laughs> like, Oh man, and so his prep work for his escape is like I need you to smash my ankles with your hammer to loosen up, you know, like to deform my uh, leg irons enough that I can slip out of them at the time when okay. the time comes for me to run, and and I got to sit here and take it while you smash these fucking things, right? Like, yeah. Okay, yeah, you you potentially cripple yourself before I you mean, even get your you plan could off. Very easily, just like break your ankle right in that mm-hmm. moment. And do you think, certainly by the standards of the film, you, you know, like there's no, there's no like, there's no infirmary here. Mm-mm. You know, you break your ankles, and then it's like, well, okay, well, hop. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, there's that guy who has what, the, like, the stomach problems or whatever the fuck, like, and he can't work anymore, and they just let him like lay there and basically die. You know, can't work. We're gonna splash water on you, and that's it. You know? Yep. And the next day, it's like, well, he's dead. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I find it interesting just in terms of like the backstory that you kind of get because there is this, there is this like extended 
narrative that like before he gets you know into prison, which I think is interesting in that it's it does track Burns's story, the real life author's story, you know, to, to some degree. But it's like I went to the war, I was a decorated war veteran. I come back, I've got this kind of boring ass job that I don't want to do. Instead, I want to kind of go off and do this other thing. And then I'm going to go and seek my fortune. So you kind of get this like sort of relationship between like his brother and I think his mom or something um, having this kind of back and forth, which really only comes back at the very end. And you really don't get like a a clear sense of a thematic through line, but it does do this sort of thing of like saying, you know, going and working in a factory, even in like the cushy desk job, which he Mm -hmm. was given, which, you know, as boring as like sorting paperwork is, it's not like, you know, you're actually going to be working on the shop floor or anything like that. So there's a, there's a, there's a PTSD. Yeah. Yeah. Nod here. Right. Cause yeah. Yeah. So they give him a desk job, and you know that that's definitely a way better job than he had in the factory before he uh, went to war. But he gets there, and they're you know they're firing off blasting caps or whatever outside the building to you know or whatever, whatever the fuck the factory's doing. And it's like I I can't stay they're here. Like, like building, they're like building a road next to yeah. like a bridge or something, and like he's staring at that bridge, and that's like what he really wants to do is to kind of go and study civil engineering and become an mm-hmm. engineer, which is what he eventually does in the film. But the film connects like my war, my work as a soldier when I was kind of being forced to kind of do these things and kind of be this person with work in a factory, which is, you know, I'm, I'm in this very like automated, I'm a cog in a machine. I'm, you know, I'm just kind of doing the thing to like make production happen. Even if I'm just kind of sorting paperwork, it definitely treats those two things as very similar. And then he ends up in the actual prison system, which is the most regimented version of that. Right. And despite the end, but like what he wants is to have like the freedom to kind of go out and, be a worker and like sell his sell his labor at his own like kind of will and to study civil engineering so that he can actually go out and build things and and make a difference in the world and not just be that and i think that the fact that the film is a about prison and about prison labor at that point uh, which is not something that's ever gone away in this country Mm -hmm. um but also that it equates factory labor at the time with being a soldier and yeah. having like very similar kinds of you know like they are this is war done by other means in a, in a certain way and i think there's something interesting there i think there's something that the film touches but doesn't quite explore in in those terms and i find it interesting that it even bothers to go there because um mooney himself was also uh blacklisted uh kind of later in his career and he was like friends with a lot of people who are blacklisted for mm-hmm. um you know during the mccarthy era and which again there, there's some there's some kind of political relevance kind of happening there and it's very it's not subtle but it doesn't it doesn't it's not really explored in detail but i found it interesting that it's so signaled at the very beginning of the film in material which is otherwise pretty extraneous obviously you know i mean you mm-hmm. can pretty much just kind of start the film 15 minutes in with i'm gonna go off and make my fortune and then you know like i'm broke and then i ran up to a guy and then i end up accidentally committing a robbery and yeah you're right you you really don't need the the sort of preface of oh i came back from war and stuff like you can jump right into he's a guy depression era trying to make his way and, and he you know he falls short and goes into well, a no, life this of is crime depression this is like 21 this is, oh, this, that's is right. this is long before the depression. This is like the good times, right? But um, there's this glut of labor because yeah. all these men have come back from war. Like right. that's kind of the problem is 
you know, we're building a bunch of shit. And then, like, <laughs> ultimately you're competing for, like, you're competing as labor with the uh, effective slave labor force that is the um, chain gang system, which is sort of the other unstated thing that is not, that is definitely in the film, but is not explored in any way. Is like ultimately, well, and now I'm working for literally nothing for like the gruel that they give me every day for 16 hours a day and making the thing that the work that I would have otherwise been happy to do were I a free man kind of going out and doing it on my, you know, there's a, there's an interesting balance there, right? Like, you know, the shit they're eating too, it's lard and sogrum and bacon fat or something like that. It's like, Oh God. Um, We're going to give you fat and starch. This is your, this is what we feed you because this will keep you working long enough to, for us to like make our, make our, make our um, money. So you're saying this film, whether intentionally or maybe just slightly by accident kind of touches on um, foreseeing what factory work ends up being like during world war two, where it becomes a super patriotic thing where it's like, ladies get into the factories and you can fight the war too against you know against the krauts and stuff like that you know the the whole workforce gets sort of or a majority of the workforce gets you know retooled around for the war effort we're going to produce we're going to produce uh parts for tanks and shit like that and you and do your part to to fight the hun and, well, uh, you know. i think i I, I get that reading and i'm I, i'm i'm making a slightly different point because like the um you know, like the the IWW was founded just a few years before the events of this film. It was you know mm-hmm. it was twenty years old or something at the time that the film was made. And there's you know Eugene V. Deb said like run for president like you know four times by the time this this you know um, FDR was president uh, well would be president at the end of 1932. So you know we'll mm-hmm. you know but um, but there is this idea that there's you know, leftist political organizing and, like, union organizing was a huge right. thing that was kind of going on politically around this time and was, like, it would have been, you know, the fact that it's not in the film is really just sort of a, like, it's so in the culture around this time that it, it doesn't have to be stated, right? But, you know, it is it is sort of, like, suggesting that, you know, the imperialist kind of war ambition of 1918, of, you know, the, the European powers battling each other and sending the working classes in to like die for them <laughs> and the sort of expansionist regime of um, you know sort of rapacious capital and you know ultimately the prison system it's all sort of part of the same system and i mm-hmm. think that like the film again it doesn't go there it doesn't do this at all overtly in the film but it's portraying something because it's it is through a lens darkly, it is portraying a man's life, you know, yeah. like he has participated in the system in all three ways. I think it's interesting that the real life figure became a writer and an editor, whereas the film kind of gives our protagonist a job as like a, you know, an upper level civil engineer yeah. who becomes like a big and kind of famous muckety muck in this, you know, what do they call it? The tri, the tri uh, state uh, engineering firm or whatever. It's yeah, called, right? he's, yeah, he's totally he's totally establishment at his peak. You know. Oh yeah, no, no, yeah. and and of course it's because he becomes a member of this establishment because he becomes a member of this like elite class that he gets the sort of political protection that he does. Which you know, <laughs> I just love that you run into this guy Bomber. Bomber helps him escape the first time. Then he shows back up in like the worst of the worst prison system, and Bomber is still there, still. Mm-hmm. Swing, been swinging that hammer all this time for the 
you know, eight years or whatever that this guy's been gone. And it's, it's, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating sort of angle on it, you know? It, yeah. And it is sad because guys like bomber are just lifers basically. Like they, yeah. they got nothing else, you know, outside of prison. It's kind of like Shawshank redemption, that, that old prisoner who, yeah, he, he gets out and then there's nothing there for him. Like he gets a job bagging groceries and he can't, yep. he just can't, he can't uh, swing it. And he just, you know, he, he hangs himself, you know? Yeah. Well, and, uh, you know, we don't get enough of a background on Bomber to kind of uh-huh. know exactly what, kind of what's going on. I mean, it is like, <laughs> it is one of those, like, what did you do to get in here? And it's like, oh, yeah, that guy killed three men. How many did you kill? And it's like, I was looking at a hamburger. Looking <laughs> at a hamburger, yep. Like, that was all I, <laughs> that's all I wanted it was a fucking hamburger, you know. Um, <laughs> the overarching thing here is that no matter where this guy goes... He, he runs into another box. He runs into another prison. You know, like mm-hmm. uh, even when he hits high society, his girlfriend basically blackmails him and marries him and yep. keeps him under a chain. You know, and, and he even says, "Living here, married to you, might as well be back on the chain gang. It's just as bad." And I'm like, "No, I'm I'm pretty sure it's not. I'm pretty, it's I'm, not really. It's like really, you, it's not. It's not. You can make it work." Yeah. She's got boyfriends. I'm sure she wouldn't care too much if if <laughs> if you had some girlfriends, you know. Paying for the expenses of the socialite who's blackmailing you. I mean, that's bad. I'm not saying that's yeah. that, that doesn't suck. It's not uh spending 16 hours a day breaking rocks in Louisiana heat. Like yeah. it's, it's although although you know, uh, I, I guess I guess it's just a testament to like the sort of social mores of the time. It's, no, I can't have a wife and a girlfriend. I have to divorce my first wife and then marry my girlfriend and get a new wife. You know, so there's like a social pressure thing there. He apparently, you know, that's weighing heavy on his shoulders. Like, no, I, I actually have to marry the woman I love. So you know, I, I, can't, I can't. Well, I mean, to, he was kind of coerced into marrying the first girl to begin with, right? Um, and doesn't really want to kind of be there, um, and uh, you know, like kind of going off being like, "Well, this is my new mistress, and I, you know, she's making me way happier." Mm-hmm. I mean, the film really kind of a it's 1932, which I mean, this is pre-code, so it is. You know, the film is very risque in what it's allowed to portray. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, it's still 1932, and it's not going to quite kind of go there the way you know we would probably want it to 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 really explore this in a little bit more detail. Um, I found it interesting again. You've got I mean, really I said three, but really there are four because at the very beginning of the film, it's like you know there's another blonde. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like well, you grew up nice, and I kept thinking this girl's going to come back. No, she doesn't. She just she never just does. Stopped, you know? And then there's a prostitute, I suppose. It's very clear that this is what this is supposed to be, right? Mm-hmm. You know, um, when he uh, first escapes from the chain gang and he like spends a night with her, you get a very significant fade to black, which I think is clearly supposed to uh, be about sex. You know, it's like, um, yeah, she 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 sat on your lap and gave you a hand job right there, and then things went from there, you know, kind of thing. And she's wearing like a really tight slinky black dress that, oh right right yeah. you know you've got the slinky black dress that goes all the way almost to the ankles but you're definitely showing <laughs> i thought it was so funny too because the <laughs> shot does go down there and it's all right all right black dress she's covered all right ankles and then we focus on the ankles for a couple seconds oh okay oh yeah, okay. right it was it was 1920 1922 i guess at this point so you know it's a it's a thing it's a thing we get it we get it 
Um, but then, like, he dates the one girl, or he, like, the girl that he, like, rents the room from. And then there's another blonde. <laughs> He's like, oh, apparently so, I just likes blondes, you know? I, I, don't I know. guess. <laughs> and ones that look exactly the same, because I, I was confused, because the, the girl he wants to marry, Helen, or whatever, she looks so much like his fucking secretary... Because yeah. I th- I thought when oh, he was right, at the, the party, secretary, I fucking yeah. forgot the secretary. I, I thought he his his wife was was out you know carousing around you know fucking other dudes. So she, he took another girl. Well, I thought he took his secretary to the party, but no, that's just a, Helen's just a girl he meets at the yeah. party yeah. that he falls yeah. for. You know, well, you know that's how it goes, right? <laughs> <laughs> So the fact that he has a bunch of blonde women in his life that are, you know, basically interchangeable by the standards, of, you know, again, it's 1932. We're just going mm, to move on. Prison would be would be preferable to staying with you, you harpy who who there's, runs up my expense account a little bit every month. There's also something weird going on with her accent that the film is trying to do, and that when she's trying to seduce him, like she has this, she puts on this like high society kind of you mm-hmm. know, vibra- you know, like contralto kind of you know like sound, and then like when she's pissed at him, she just becomes this. Yeah, you know what it's like. I'm not gonna, be, you know, it's a very kind of like broad, brassy sort of like you know. Well, like, you get the you get the sense that she's a woman of loose morals who would rather hang out in a bar than anything else because he comes back to the house one time and. Just finds all these cigarettes and half-empty glasses of booze yeah. laying around, <laughs> and I don't think they. The funny thing is, I don't think they changed up the set design from that shot to another shot. Where I think the, I think if you probably checked, all the glasses and all the cigarettes are in exactly the same spot. Although it's supposed to be like you know days later or something like that, or right, uh, right. but you know. <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, what what kind of man is going to like clean up for himself in that situation? You know, like, yeah. you know, there's a he's got a maid who's going to come in and do it. You know, who I'm sure he paid very fair wages and was not working under the effective conditions that he was working under on the chain. Game. She she, she like, definitely wasn't under softer. You know, she definitely not, wasn't black or Mexican, and you yeah, know, definitely not. Well, yeah. not at, not at this time. I mean, you know, like she was probably like. Italian or something in 1921. Oh man, scandalous! Chicago I mean, you or know. Irish, maybe. Yeah, it could be. Um, we should uh, talk about the ending. Yeah, um, you know, like as, as as much as I like the film, and as much as I think the, you know, it does. Like you played this kind of extended sequence of you know, sort of like the um, you know, the legal wrangling because this guy like he decides like, oh, I'm gonna go back to the chain gang. They promised me then I'm going to get out in 90 days. Mm-hmm. And then like, they just completely fuck him over, which dude, it was totally going to, even your own lawyer is they're going to like, yeah, I wouldn't do this. No, no, don't, yeah. don't do this. We, we, you should stay here. You should, you should not do this. Um, you know, <laughs> always, if you're, if you're given the choice of like, Oh, I'm just going to go into this horrifying prison condition. And they have given me a promise that means nothing. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, I expected that they were gonna like pretend like, oh, and then he committed some crime while he was in, or he he committed some infraction or whatever, and therefore they get to like resentence him or whatever. Like that's that's how they do it in real life, you know. It's none of this, you know, high minded stuff. But um, he goes back in, escapes again, and a really phenomenal like chase Good. sequence. It's yeah. it's a really really well done um action sequence. And then, like, in the last, like, two minutes of the film, he just kind of ends up being this, like, person who, like, is, like, kind of stealing in the shadows, and he gets in this very, as you said, this kind of noir attitude. And, like, the final lines of the film are, like, he kind of, he reaches out to Helen, he, like, meets her, 
and she wants to to him to kind of come back and the, she wants to be with him again and like his life is a shambles and she's like how do you survive and he goes i steal I and that's steal. the last line of the film yeah. now i have no problem with the idea that the prison system itself and the uh, persecution of this guy has turned him into this um the common criminal that it always pretended he was to begin with yeah. i do have a problem with it being completely un uh remarked upon until the final two minutes of an hour and 32 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the problem this 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 movie you know it's very it's very like it goes by super quick you know mm-hmm. 90 minutes basically and <clears throat> it hits all the points but then it gets to this and then it just feels so tacked on like it just yep. feels so tacked on because you could just end it. I mean, it is a really powerful ending, and I think in thirty-two, I think that was something that mm-hmm. really sent the audience kind of out of the out of the movie with this like message of like this is what this guy's been brought to. But you could easily end it on the like sequence of newspaper articles of where is this guy? He's gone. He's missing, et cetera, et cetera, and then just sort of like fade out from there or have some. You could end you know, it on him getting killed. You could get it on like uh, her pining away for him, like wondering mm-hmm. where he is, you know, and just yeah. kind of leave it a little bit more ambiguous. <laughs> you know, it's just like when you when you have him like show up again and kind of just going like I've become a hunted animal and I and he's now like completely paranoid again, created by the system, created by this like prison complex, created by that thing, you know. But it doesn't like it just it just doesn't quite work thematically. Like we haven't seen that progression in his character like he's still, right you know like and i think that that's just something that like as a modern audience we kind of expect there to be a little bit more of a you know we expect to see the foreshadowing a little bit more if, like, if you had like another half hour there is really the story of the lives that he's left behind because yeah. you know he broke out of prison again and he's gone and there should be like some sort of exploration of that, but there isn't it's just it just we right. don't have time for it we have we have an hour and a half guys we got to do it it was like you you could thought a better ending. You really yeah, could well, have had a better. And in, in a modern remake, there's actually a there was actually a made for TV version of it on HBO yes. with Val Kilmer. With Val Kilmer, yeah. Which I'm really curious. I'm really curious if we this can is that. this is actually uh, I, this one's actually you know based on actually uh, Burns's story. It's oh, not nice. it's not so much a remake as it is. Uh, you know, docudrama of the mm. real thing. So, the the man who broke one thousand chains from nineteen eighty seven with with Kilmer, which I just think uh, I would break one thousand chains and I would <laughs> break one thousand more. Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no. Um, I mean, uh, despite my kind of issues with the ending, and despite sort of, like, I think it's a really well made film. I think it's, it's it's phenomenal stuff and like so groundbreaking classic. for the time mm-hmm. and looks amazing. I mean, I, yep. I think there's we could kind of like poke at certain sequences. It's this is kind of social realism stuff that I think it really really works and it's really well well done. And I think I wish I'd seen this earlier. Yeah, and ironically, like really like kind of relevant even to the modern day. You know, in the sense of the way that it's sort of portraying these kind of horrifying prison conditions which again um i mean you're canadian so you get to like shunt this off to the to the richer brother to the south the u.s has the largest incarcerated population in the world living under conditions that are not significantly better than mm-hmm. what we're seeing in this film and in some ways probably worse 
there's stuff from from the inside of like Mississippi prisons that just it's it's horrifying. Like it literally is hell. <laughs> yeah. And um, you know, I know we try to do like the funny the funny movie podcast, mm-hmm. but this shit is legitimately awful. And yeah. um we don't talk about that enough, despite the fact that we are having protests going on <laughs> to abolish the whole system and liberals are like, But some people need to go to prison. What do we do with serial killers? Not this. That's yeah. what we do with Syracuse, not this. That's the answer. And also not people who stole a loaf of bread and served 30 years in this fucking system, which still fucking happens. I'm very angry about this. But yeah. anyway. No, you, you you take serial killers and you never talk about them again. You just put them in a hole and, you know, give them three meals a day. Maybe don't beat them to death or whatever the fuck, but, you know. Just put them in a hole. Don't don't let them be famous. Maybe we can have fewer serial killers if we had like better social services. That too. Yeah, there are other answers to this. You know, like like it doesn't do any good to torture people. Like it's just bad. It's just bad. Mm-hmm. Um, you got to fix the prisons, but at the same time, fixing prisons doesn't fix the uh, the social problems that uh, made the prisons happen and made the people go to the prisons at the same time. Right. So yeah. Oh, <laughs> this film, this film, ninety years old, eighty-eight years old, eighty-eight. What a great and movie. it's yeah, fucking, yeah. it's fucking brilliant. And, and uh, minus, and could be made today. You could make it, this today. Yeah, it it kind of feels to me like Night of the Living Dead in a way. Is it's one of those films where you kind of look at it and go like, wow, they they really didn't make them quite like this before this yeah. film for the most part. You know, kind mm-hmm. yeah, no, of a bit of a sea change, but uh, yeah. So uh, a little bit of. Tr- well, we'll go to... Uh... Oh, and Paul Mooney was a child star in Yiddish theater. <laughs> nice. And in, like, one of his very early roles, when he was 12 years old, he played an 80-year-old. And he did it all his own makeup. He was a makeup expert. He did it all his own makeup in many, many films, including, like, The Life of Louis Pasteur. Where he didn't like, yeah, no, he was an he was an expert makeup artist. He could have had a career just as a makeup artist, despite you know, like that's how good he was. Got like, imagine it. if like Rick Baker also played the Terminator in addition to <laughs> you know, that's the level of talent we're looking at here. He played the Terminator and he looked like Arnold Schwarzenegger. At the exactly, same time. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's the, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, budget for this was two hundred twenty-eight thousand, and it got a return of one point five million. So it did very well that year for Warner Brothers. We got some DVD info here. There's no Blu-ray for this, apparently. Yeah, there should uh, be Criterion. Yeah, like, yeah, I'm so surprised this is not on Criterion. It, it, it's so fucking up their alley. It should be there. Uh, but uh, Warner Brothers has a DVD from two thousand five that. Is super pricey by the looks of it. It was sixty some dollars, I think, was yeah. the sort of trending price. And there's also a Warner Brothers, uh, and I, I think this is like a single release. Like they they took all these films in this collection and single release them too. But they have their controversial classics collection from 2005, and it's got this. It's got Bad Day of Black Rock, Blackboard Jungle, I think, yeah, and sure. some yeah. stuff. That's yeah, a good, well, that's a good collection. Yeah, no. Yeah, it was lo- I was looking at a lot of good stuff on it, and that's uh, to get that's like a hundred twenty-ish, I think, something like that. So oh, yeah. I, I'd be like, get the collection instead, and you'll get all those films. You know, in- instead of paying half the price for this this one DVD, get the entire fucking collection for like hundred twenty bucks or whatever. Yeah. But yeah, I rented it on Amazon for two dollars. Yeah, I rented it on uh, YouTube. And- oh no, I'm sorry, I rented it on YouTube. I- 
there was two dollars in both places. It's yeah, it's it's, it's, it's streaming everywhere. It's worth two dollars. It's it's, it's it's streaming everywhere, and the only reason it's not on Blu-ray is because physical media has been dying out. That's probably the reason. Uh, Paul Muni uh, conducted several intensive meetings with Robert E. Burns and Burbank in order to capture the way the real fugitive walked and talked, in essence, to catch the smell of fear, quote-unquote. He also refused uh, a double for the rock quarry scene, so uh, he, he got fucking eye strain and blisters and sunburn and all that shit, so he did the method thing, eh? Yeah. Um, Before the method, I don't know I don't know how early Stanislavski was... Uh was doing his thing in the theater, but I mean, clearly this is, you know, this is, this yeah. is free method. Yeah. Uh, so James Cagney was originally cast as James Allen in this, which <laughs> I don't know if that works. I, I feel like, like I love Cagney, but he's big and I think too big <sighs> for this. Maybe. I think, yeah, no, it is. It is one of the, well, and Paul Mooney, like this is, this is at the beginning of Paul Mooney's career, right? Like a mm-hmm. few years later, he was kind of like the Brad Pitt of his sort of like time period of, you know, being someone who was both seen as like this, like huge star, but also had like serious acting chops who could mm-hmm. kind of do the thing. Um, but this was, this was at the very beginning. Like this is very early in his career, um, at least in, in film. He had done a couple of films uh, in the silent era and sort of, you know, or, you know, at least the late twenties. Um but this was this, you know, this and Scarface come out in the same year, and this is like his big like blow up moment, right? Yeah. Um, and then so I feel like even a few years later, it would have seemed um, weird to sort of have him do this role because he would have been like bigger than bigger than the role. But I think it's interesting to kind of put yourself in the place of the audience in 1932 and kind of go like, yeah, this this guy that maybe we've seen in a couple of movies. He's kind of this like well known kind of guy on the stage. But, you know, not like huge, huge movie star, which, again, he became very clearly after this. Like, you know. Yeah. Spencer Tracy was also considered for this at one point, which yeah. kind of works. Yeah, certainly in this era, I could see Spencer Tracy in the in the early 30s. Yeah. And, I'm also uh, Spencer Tracy from the later stuff that he did. So, you know, yeah. <laughs> I'm kind of imagining him in like 1957, kind of wandering in in his, you know, like rotund, you know, like I'm breaking rocks. Got to break some rocks. I like after Bad Day of Black Rock. I kind of just want Spencer Tracy. Like I, I wanted him, uh, you know, as offensive as this would be now, because you know he, he wasn't handicapped. I, I kind of want him to be the guy whose his gimmick was in every movie. He has one arm, and he just I want him to have one arm in this film and this yeah. like, do his thing. I don't. I'm know. just imagining like 1950 Spencer Tracy. Having his like manacles hammered by a giant African American man. <laughs> take it, take it, take it. And you're just gonna look at it and go like your ankles are broken. Like I was looking at this and just like watching this and going like I'd last like two days. Like I, you know, like yeah, no, there's there's no way. Like it's. <laughs> I mean, it it it's just a it's just a different breed of person. Like you come back from the fucking world, you come back from fucking World War One, you survive that, right? And then here's here's what you're gonna here's what you're expected to do. You know, these days you come back from war. It's oh, I should get money to go to college and get a nice you know job where I don't have to worry about breaking my back and labor and stuff. You know, I I, sh- I should be you know given that by my government for my service to my country. Here it's like come back from World War One. Back to the factory with you, you know, like and, yeah. and and no complaints, and you know, it, you know, I, I don't want to sit here and like uh, 
uh, go the greatest generation and all this fucking bullshit. But you know, there's there's a little bit to that. There there's definitely there was a tougher life. It, there was definitely more expected of a person. You know, don't whine, don't complain, just fucking get to it, kind of thing. But right. I, I don't know. Well, I think there's a I think there's a mythology that we tell ourselves even now yeah. because like soldiers do come back from from mm-hmm. the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq, and, and you know, and soldiers do kind of do their service and then come back and then like, okay, maybe you do the GI bill, but also mm-hmm. like, you know, what the fuck are you going to do in the process? Like, you know, like, you know, you get money for college, but like, you still got to go and do, you know, lots of manual labor. Like I knew somebody like kind of back in the day who put in his like 20 years in the army, got out at like 38. Right. Mm-hmm. And then went and started up a lawn mowing business and was yep. like mowing lawns for a living, you know, like, you know, because you do your 20 years, like you've done your time. And then it's like, well, now what else are you going to do? Mow lawns, you know? And yep. He was like, no, I'm happy to do this. It's like, it'll, it'll, you know, give me, it gives me something to do. gets me out in the sun. I enjoy it or whatever. But like, you know, it's that doing that job. I mean, granted, depending on when this was in Alabama and I can't imagine like having a life of like mowing lawns in Alabama, oh, you, no. know? Like, you know, but for this guy, this is what he wanted to do. Like, and, you know, like that is very similar to the like, oh, and then you go into the factory job sort of thing. Like this connects with me in terms of what I was kind of talking about earlier about the, the kind of social con conduct of the, uh, the factory work versus like the soldier work versus the mm-hmm. prison labor kind of system. And that is, there's a lot of talk today about how people who are a little bit younger than us, people, you know, particularly kind of the next generation down. And then the one after that, the the millennials and the zoomers are having this issue of like, well, I get, I finished school, I go to college or whatever. And then I come out and there are no jobs and there's no like factory work. Well, that factory work was fucking awful. Like nobody wanted to do that. You did that because like it was backbreaking labor, but you can make a living for yourself and your family. And you could have that house and you could have that thing. But the big thing that we talked about at the time, like as a culture, was we shouldn't have to do this anymore. We should not have to have this in our life, you know. And then all those jobs went away (laughs) for a variety of complicated reasons. And it's like, well, now you don't even have that option anymore of like, I'm going to go and like torture myself for for 40 years, but I will have like a pretty decent living and I will be able to feed a family, et cetera, et cetera. And I feel like there is this sort of like balance, right? Between like, we can have this, it's a nuanced conversation that we should be able to have Mm. around these kind of varying things. Automation is good. It saves people from the backbreaking labor, but the benefits of that automation don't accrue to the workers. It accrues to the capitalist class. Yeah. yeah. It's not what you thought you were going to get when you clicked on a podcast about a movie from 1932, (laughs) but uh, that's where my brain went. So there you go. Yeah. So I'm a fugitive for a chain game was nominated for three Academy Awards, including best picture. Paul Mooney secured a best actor mention. He lost to Charles Lawton for the private life of Henry VIII. While the film was also recognized for best sound, uh, the film lost the best picture trophy to Cavalcade from 1932. Oh, well, which I don't know. I don't know. I don't either. Yeah. But this this feels like the best picture from 1932, <laughs> honestly. Like, despite the fact that we've seen a lot of really great films from mm-hmm. 1932. Um, but yeah, no. Uh, yeah. I'm kind of thinking that you and I, or if there was someone doing just a pre code podcast, mm-hmm. it would be amazing. We would get bored just kind of doing films because the pre-code era, like, officially is sort of like all the way back to the beginning of film up until about 
like mid nineteen thirty four. Yeah. July thirty July I think it's like July first, nineteen thirty four is like the day that the Hayes Code officially comes into it. And so anything before that. But really the reality is like you're talking about like the advent of sound mm-hmm. or a couple of years after to like thirty three, thirty four, you know, sort of thing. So you're really only talking about like at most like five years worth of yeah. movies, right? And so many amazing films were made in this era, precisely because of kind of like this weird like sensorious uh, sensor board kind of kind of context. And so you get this like really weird stuff that the slinky you see the shot of like the girl in the slinky dress mm-hmm. and you go all the way down. We're gonna go down to her ankles, right? <laughs> and that's like the really like sexy shot. Yep. But at the same time, like you wouldn't see this again until like the sixties, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like there's something amazing about this era, you know, and that's what that's what's so fascinating about it. Like I could I just I really love like watching films from this like very particular time period. So even though we've we've seen a lot of great stuff, thirty two has been a lot of fun. It's right up there yeah. with yeah. But, uh, yeah, I think I think moving to thirty three is probably what we need to do. Just so we can eventually come back to 32. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's great stuff in 33. There's a great stuff in 33. Don't worry. I've got, I've got a list. Yeah, we've got a, we've got a large fucking list. So uh, what are we doing uh, next week, Daniel? So one film that I definitely want to do is Gabriel Over the White House, which is a literally like pro-fascist movie, uh, which sort of gets framed as not being that because it's like, no, it's warning people against, no, no, it was a very pro-fascist movie. <laughs> I'm having some issues sourcing it. So we will do it as soon as I, I may. I mean, I can buy a DVD for 20 bucks and like rip it and send it to you uh, in Minecraft. I would not actually. In Minecraft, of course. In Minecraft, yes. I would not actually. We will buy dual copies and each have it for ourselves. So that's, that's the way we're going to do this. Anyway, um, it is, it is accessible. It's not streaming anywhere. Um, so I was looking at the list. There are a couple of blonde girl movies. Um, there's like a, uh, kind of a, again, pre-code kind of racy movie and then sort of a, like a comedy drama thing. Um, mm-hmm. and those two are both Babyface and Bombshell from 1933. And I think we should, uh, we should like just dive into that for next week and just sort of like move away from the more like uh, socio-political context um, and just kind of have a little bit of fun with a couple of like goofy uh, pre-code movies, if that sounds good to you. Uh, we're, we're gonna, we're gonna leave 32 and we're not gonna do, uh, so, blonde, well, blonde Venus. We could and... do Blonde Venus and Shanghai Express are mm-hmm. two Marlene Dietrich movies from 32. If you want to do those instead, I'm happy to do that. It's sort of the same phenomenon of like, you know, just watch Marlene Dietrich be sexy and cool in <laughs> two films from 32. I thought maybe we should just move on to 33 just as a way of like moving forward. Okay. Um, it's really up to you. It's really up to no, you. actually, that's good. Uh, Thirty-three. We've got uh, two upcoming guest episodes too, which right, uh, yeah. So, so and uh, so, I think we could do those two films, and then uh, I know, uh, and then let you kind of schedule out uh, kind of what's right. going on there. With um, we also have Deluge, which uh, is a disaster movie. Oh, um, oh really yeah, yeah, special effects from nineteen thirty-three. So, if you want to do Deluge, I would be happy to just do that instead. Uh, okay, yeah, actually, um, I'll, I'll talk to you off the podcast. Deluge would probably work better because that would 
uh, give us a few less films to watch potentially okay. for something yeah, else. Sure. No, no, that's, okay. that's fine with me. No, I let you do two if it's just kind of like, you know, oh, we're not going to have a whole lot to say. So, you know, it's kind of sort of just kind of come in. But yeah, also, I haven't tried to source Deluge yet, um, but uh, I think it's going to be pretty widely available. So. Um, yeah, all this gets kind of a little podcaster. You know, usually we do this after we end up recording. Yeah. Like, you know, we end the recording and then have the, you know, 20 minute conversation about what we're doing next week. But, uh, it's fine. Yeah. Uh, so Daniel, tell people where they can find you on the interwebs. I am on Twitter at Daniel Lee Harper. If you want to come follow me around and, uh, look at mostly what I tweet about is, uh, fucking Nazi dipshits and mm-hmm. the effects that they have on the world. And that's because, I've been researching these people for a long time. I do another podcast, which you've probably heard of if you're a fan of this podcast. You know, <laughs> unless you just cut everything off like 10 minutes early, you've yeah. probably heard of this podcast. It's called I Don't Speak German. Because A, I don't speak German, and B, I listen to fucking Nazis all the time, and I know uh, what they say when they don't think anyone like me is listening to them. Although now they know who I am, and so they like to go and hide in darker corners, which is great for everyone. So mm-hmm. anyway, if you want to know what I have learned by listening to fucking Nazis for four years, go check it out. I don't speak German. And if you don't want to do that, <laughs> or if you, you, don't, wanna, you don't want to do you, that, if you want to take a break from that. You can go to tmbdos.podbean.com where you can find our Apple podcast, Facebook and YouTube links. Join the Facebook group. Best way to get in contact with us. If you want to send in uh, voicemails, we have that uh, option now. So if you want to do that, audio feedback, uh, just look at uh, tmbdos.podbean.com and the email is there. You can just cut and paste into your Gmail or whatever the fuck you got going on. Remember back in the day when there was email links on stuff? That's not really a thing anymore, right? It's, it's kind of like most people don't really have like Oh, you, you click an email and then it opens yeah. up into your email service thing. It's it's more like it's all Most Gmail. Most people now. don't really have like a, a like sort of an external mail like software. Right. Most of the time you're either using like an app on your phone or you're using a like a like a tab in a browser. And so mm-hmm. I think that's kind of where that because it used to be like it's like a mail to link in that thing where you yeah. click on it and then it opens up Thunderbird or whatever. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and there's still there's still some of that. I mean, you know, like work email. I, I mean, right. I, my job, I get like kind of work emails, and it's like you could just like click on somebody's name, but that's like it feeds you into like the company address book and does its own thing. Anyway, <laughs> we don't have to talk about how company, how yeah. corporate email works. Um, that's not what people come to this podcast for. I don't know. No. Do you want to spend an hour talking about how corporate email works? We <laughs> could. We could. <laughs> Subscribe to the Patreon. We can do that. Subscribe to the the (laughs) non-existent Patreon for that fantasy podcast, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) All all your desires will be, uh, you know, thirst will be quenched there. Let's talk about how, like, technology worked in the 90s. I can explain (laughs) the AOL floppy disks to the the Zoomers, you know. Let's two grandpas tell the Zoomers how things used. And how they were better. Yeah, yeah. It was better when you got five free hours from AOL. Oh, I had so many coasters back in the day. Uh, yeah. uh, but anyway, <laughs> thank you guys for listening. Uh, thank you, Daniel. And we're going to be back when we're back. Goodbye. Breaking rocks out here on the chain. Breaking rocks and serving my time. 
breaking rocks out here on the chain gang Because I've been convicted of crime I hold it steady right there while I hear it Well, I reckon that ought to get it working Uh-huh, I'm working But it's still got so heavy far to go I committed crime, Lord, I need Crime of being hungry and poor I left the grocery store, man, breathing When he caught me robbing his store I hold it steady right there while I hit it Well, I reckon that ought to get it Been working, uh-huh, working But I still got so heavy far to go My sweet honey baby Gonna break this chain off the rung I'm gonna lay down somewhere shady Lord, show his heart in the sun Hold it steady right there while I hit it Well, I reckon that ought to get it Been working, working But I still got so terribly far to go Rocks out here on the chain gang. Oh, I've been working and working, but I still got so terribly far to go. Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Site. For further episodes, our Apple Podcasts, Facebook, and YouTube links, please go to tmbdos.podbean.com. Thank you. Drive through.